what I despise the most, I would say, is two things. Inaction, number one, and two, assuming a role of, of victimhood. So when you look around and everyone's overworked around you, all these other docs, and they're all complaining, I don't have time to do this. I want to go on this vacation. I got patients calling me all the time. It's like, I didn't want to be around that anymore. I want to take action. I want to fix it. And, I, and I'm ready to do something. So I don't need to have those things. What if you could reclaim hours of free time each week, create legacy building wealth, and devote more energy to your passion projects without giving up on your career as a life-saving MD? Dr. Vikram Raya is a functional cardiologist, high-performance coach, and real estate expert, is here to give you the tools, strategies, and solutions you need to transform your life, unlock your limitless potential, and achieve greatness, all while freeing up your precious time. Welcome to Limitless MD. Let's dive in. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Limitless MD. I'm your host, Vikram Ryan. Today, I have my good friend, Dr. David Hergen. David is a board-certified orth orthopedic surgeon. He is uh, the founder of a practice in Connecticut. And not only that, he is the director of joint replacement programs. He is a, an entrepreneur. He's starting to do real estate. Uh, in fact, he's in the middle of a medical uh, office project. He has helped navigate his group to sell to private equity. Um, he is a super dad of two amazing kids, uh, awesome husband, and loves to travel and do all these other fun things. And so we're going to learn about how he delivers such a high-performance lifestyle and how he is able to um, you know, balance everything, including the amazing things that I want to focus on today, which is... Uh, medical office development, uh, private equity, and then now he's getting into the field of regenerative medicine. So, David, welcome to the show. Hey, Vic. How are you? Good to see you. I'm looking forward to our talk today. So, you know, you started off as as an orthopedic surgeon. How did all of this sort of unfold as you became sort of a multidisciplinary uh, expert in numerous uh, categories? Yeah. So, um, you know, I came out of a, a fellowship in orthopedics uh, out of New York City and looking for jobs, found a job in, with a, a really successful group in Connecticut and a great group of guys. Uh, they had a great track record and there was an opportunity for me to provide some value to the group. So I get up there, I'm excited to join private practice, excited to be a business owner uh, and run our own business and, and uh, showed up and quickly learned that I had as much uh, business experience as everyone in the group which was pretty much nothing. So <laughs> we were kind of focused on, you know, taking care of patients, mastering our craft, providing high quality care for people in the community. But we we're also excited about having our own business and kind of uh, growing our name. And it was difficult. Uh, we realized that we had no experience in running a private practice. So you know, the first five years of my of my career, I kind of head down, trying to grow my patient volume, taking a ton of call, meeting primary care docs in the area, trying to drive growth. And all that was going great. Um, and in the free time, I realized I'm doing things like looking over electric bills, figuring out how to pay the rent for the group, looking at the huge rent bills we have for the space that we rent. And then I said, we got to drive this business more. So next thing you know, I'm kind of negotiating with uh, 
CMS trying to get a certificate of need for an MRI, uh, negotiating a purchase of an MRI, starting a whole physical therapy business and, and driving the growth of that, figuring out the right electronic medical record system, handling HR, and just a constant battle with our group of finding the right kind of C-suite executives to take our group to the next level. We were successful. Everything was great, but you just kind of keep plugging away, plugging away, putting out fires. And at some point I looked up and I'm 10 years into my practice and I'm thinking, wait, there's got to be a better way to do this. So you get to this point where I feel like I've mastered what I was trained to do. The surgery part you know, became easy for me. That was, that was fun. And and then the business part, you know, I thought I was a business owner. And then I realized like, like Robert Kiyosaki would say, I was really a self-employed. This business owned me. I was spending too much time handling things that really I shouldn't have been handling. And it was fun for a while. And I look up 10 years, I feel like I'm at the pinnacle of my career, right? uh, I became chairman of the orthopedic department in our local hospital, director of our quality improvement program. I'm the head team physician for our local university. All this is great. What else can I do? I, you know, I became on the, on the board of our surgical center. And then I realized, wait a minute, other parts of my life are really being sacrificed here. And some of these other parts are important, right? There's family time, there's, there's self-care. And I realized what's the next 10, 15 years going to look like? And these are things I think you never think of when you start in medical practice. You're so focused. You're on a track for success. You're excited to get to where you're going. There's always a next step. And then 10 years in, I've achieved what I want to achieve. And, I, and I'm thinking, is the next 10, 15 years going to be dictated by 10-minute patient blocks for me? And is it going to be the same five-day schedule every week paying my W-2 taxes, giving money to, to an investment advisor, and then we'll retire when I'm 65. The, the whole thing kind of, I had this mindset shift. Like there's, I love life too much. I love learning too much. I want to do other things with my time. I want to get engaged in other ways. I want to be smarter about my finances. And so I kind of started this whole journey into increasing my financial literacy. And that's led to seeking out mentors. That's led to a whole nother universe that's kind of opened my whole vision and 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 really kind of taken my level of happiness, my ability to practice medicine in a way that I want, do better for my patients, and kind of giving up some of these things that I previously felt were kind of crucial and important and realizing how, how the priorities have shifted. Uh, I think that's such, such a nice journey that you've painted for us from, you know, coming out of <laughs> ortho uh, training and starting a practice from day one, what that felt like all the way to, Hey, now I'm the head of the practice. I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of the director of the departments. I'm the chief of orthopedic surgery. And, you know, I, I, I wake up and I'm like, Oh, where's all the time gone? And, you know, and um, I would ask you a couple of questions. One, what would you do differently um, if you had to do it over again? That's a tough one, uh, Vic. I try to I try to live my life with no regrets. I think early on, 
I don't know if I would do anything differently. I think the it kind of all unfolded how it was meant to unfold. I think it would have been it would have been nice earlier on to have kind of a bigger picture, but I didn't I wasn't wise. I didn't have the experience. I think, you know, in life you have to make these follies and stumbles and hiccups and and that and that's when the that's when the messages I think become the most powerful and hit home the most. Uh, they got to have to hit you over the head I think a few times until until you learn. So, you know, from the outside, David, it seems you're highly successful. You're doing the dream practice, dream life, dream surgery, uh, dream surgeon um, lifestyle. So uh, I guess people maybe understand uh, unclear of what's the problem. It seems yeah, like an uh, ideal, idyllic life. And, and you know, um, and you and I talk a lot, Vic, and I, and I value our friendship and our, in our discussions. And it does when you kind of talk out loud and I listen to myself, I'm, I'm thinking, man, like what I want to be careful about not sounding like I'm complaining about anything there. There is no one who feels more fortunate, more blessed than me. But, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize there's more to life. You can up level your life even more. It's, it's a great life on paper, but when your health is not being optimized, when your energy level is low, uh, when you're not really taking care of exercise, diet, family, uh, marriage, um, you're, these are these are important parts, important you know balls you're trying to juggle that you can't let drop, as you would say, Vic. So um, there is, I could have gone on the way I was going, and there would have been nothing to complain about. But when you know, you realize that there's more and it's kind of inherent in me to always push myself. It's how I was raised and what I saw. And I think a, a big killer for us is complacency, right? It's easy to keep going on the same road and not change. And that's how we're kind of hardwired. And I think what scares me most is, and what I despise the most, I would say, is two things. Inaction, number one. And two, assuming the role of, of victimhood. So when you look around and everyone's overworked around you, all these other docs, and they're all complaining, I don't have time to do this. I want to go on this vacation. I got patients calling me all the time. It's like, I didn't, I didn't want to be around that anymore. I want to take action. I want to fix it. And, I, and I'm ready to do something. So I don't need to have those things. So let's, let's talk down. about the action, David. Um, you've taken yeah. some some massive action uh, among many of the physicians I know. You're you're one of the most active in so many different categories. Uh, uh, it first started with you um, deciding, hey, your practice is at the point where maybe private equity makes sense. Can you walk us through uh, just sort of the um, maybe some of the metrics that made that made you want to go ahead and sell? Yeah, th this is this is kind of where this whole process started. We start. I started looking around and saying, man, we're we're in a the eight of us partners, we're in a conference room during our meetings, arguing about spending 10,000 or 15,000 on marketing this year. Th this seems silly. Um, we can't, we keep going through different CEOs or office managers. Let's figure out a way to leverage some other people, some other groups. Let's create some economies of scale. How do we do this? So we started reaching out to hospital groups. There's accounting firms who create these, these MSOs and these multi-service organizations, management service organizations that bring groups together 
you get economies of scale in HR, in leadership, administrative duties, uh, billing, collections. And going through this process, I realized, well, the reason we got into private practice, all of us agreed, is because we want our autonomy. We want to be able to affect change. We want to drive growth. We want to be the masters of whether this fails or succeeds. I want to be responsible for this. And hospitals started buying up uh, fragmented physician groups. I kind of looked into that as an option. And there's too much bureaucracy, too much uh, loss of control. And then we had a group. Um, there was another surgeon who I was friends with who recently was talking to a private equity group. So I said, let, let me go down this road. So had a couple of conversations with the CEO and realized, wow, this is uh, this could be really powerful in many ways. And, and I'll get into some of those ways, including, you know, currently, what's our equity in our private practice? It's this illiquid security that that's going nowhere. I can't sell it on the market, right? How do I, if, if I become disabled or if I retire, what do I get? I get three or six months of my accounts receivable and a gold pen and maybe like a plaque with my caricature in the surgeon's lounge. This is, this is nuts. How do we monetize what we're doing a little bit more? Yeah. And to me, I think private, after talking to some of these guys involved in private equity, this seemed like if you have the right partner, it seemed like a way that we could do this, create some capital, and also have equity in a bigger business um, that you can uh, monetize that, you can sell it for multiple, and kind of continue this cycle. So it became a really exciting process. Uh, we met with a group who was active on the East Coast in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts. And what I realized is that, and this is a big fallacy, and I want to go through a few of the fallacies, Vic, about private equity involved in healthcare. The fallacy is private equity is buying the physician groups, which is, in our case, is not the case. There's this service organization that is formed, and this organization provides services, like I mentioned, administrative services, CEO, CFO, all the C-suite people that we had difficulty finding, collections, billing, marketing, they they know how to drive growth. They know how to provide economies of scale. And they are financially backed by some private equity money. And the, and the private equity money comes from right high net worth individuals and institutional investors. And they and this MSO under this umbrella brings together like-minded, in our case, orthopedic groups who are successful, right? The hospital model is really kind of buying up these smaller mom and pop private practices who are kind of floundering, who maybe aren't doing well. These MSOs, the one we got involved with, they really, I know the guys in the other groups involved. I've spoke, I spoke to them. I made countless numbers of phone calls to, to do the vetting, met with people in person. And they, they buy a, based on your EBITDA. So the EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, right? This is how your practice is valued. It's the demonstrates the operational efficiency of your private group. It's really a cash value, uh, which functions to compare your business to other businesses. 
and they say, hey, we're going to give you a multiple of your group's EBITDA. And for a smaller group, that may be six to nine times multiple. For a medium-sized group, 10 to 12. And huge groups, even more. And, and, and this has become such a hot area of private equity money involved in healthcare, Vic, with life sciences, with pharma. And in private practice healthcare, it started really with dentistry, ophthalmology, dermatology. In the past five years, it's really moved into orthopedics at a crazy rate. Um, and, and there's tons of money. There's like two point, Bloomberg said $2.8 trillion of dry powder private equity money kind of looking for healthcare investments. So the growth since COVID, be, before COVID, the growth in physician transactions was 20, 30% from 2015 to 19. After COVID, it's like 50% growth over the course of two years. So bringing these groups together, creating economies of scale, you get, you're able to cash. So the way they, the way when they buy, there's a multiple of the EBITDA. And then me as a physician, how I'm compensated is I get a percentage of that multiple based on my personal practice in a portion of it in cash and another portion in equity. Typically, it's about 70% cash, 30% equity, but that's negotiable. Like everything else in this contract, which I came to learn, I actually personally put more in equity. I tried to, after vetting this, I figured, hey, this is a way for me to grow my net worth, right? We're, we're doing great as surgeons, like a lot of your listeners, Vic, high income physicians, but relatively low net worth, right? That's correct. That's so, right. So I want to make this switch. Here's an opportunity where I can be an investor in private equity and I see behind the curtain, right? I can drive the growth of this business. I can have a direct effect on this private equity portfolio and I can put more money into it if I want. There's opportunities. And my cash payout, Vic, and this is powerful, is capital gains taxes, right? So there's there are too many upsides, including the MSO having doing all the negotiations with insurance, which we were previously doing, beating our heads against the wall. Their contracts now, instead of trying to trying to convince an insurance payer, you have to increase us by five percent this year. They say, you're an eight-man group. We can do without you. Now we have 150, 200 orthopedic surgeons under our umbrella. Now they have to listen. The contracts are better. So you're getting more for your services from day one. So, so, so David, what, what I'm hearing is it sounds phenomenal. But I know a lot of physicians, after they made the deal, they call it, it was a deal with the devil. And then they regret sometimes the decision of private equity. Or they say, hey, private equity is tearing up my practice. or I feel like uh, I I would have I wish I had a different route instead of private equity. What do you tell those doctors? Or or is it is it perhaps is it individualized? Is it based on the the right P group? So help us understand some of that. Yeah, this is this is such a crucial point, Vic. And this is when I consult with other physicians going through this, and this is part of what I do now, and I love to do it because. You know, I don't want to make it sound like it's all roses. This is painful getting to this process. And it takes six to 12 months of a lot of work outside of your medical practice. 
and it's stress on the family, it's stress on the group, you're going into an unknown, right? So there's a risk involved in doing this. But I would argue staying stagnant is even riskier, right? Not taking risks to grow your practice, to increase your net worth, to taking advantage of opportunities to monetize what you've created. That to me is riskier. This is, if, if you, and this is a marriage, if you sign a contract with someone whose strategic objectives and imperatives are not aligned with you and the culture of your group, it could very well be a disaster. If you, if you hire the wrong lawyers to help you through this process, it could potentially be something that you want to get out of. And it's, and it's hard to unwind all this. It is possible, but it is very difficult. So there are th- some things up front that I tell people who I do some consulting with that the letter of intent is important. You need to meet with these people. You need to meet with the private equity people. You need to meet with the leaders who are running that MSO. And it's not over the phone only. You need to meet in person. You need to see the body language and you need to ask a thousand questions. And I have a list of questions that I've created over the course of time, which have served us well, my partner and I, who kind of led us um, through this deal. And, you know, they like, some of these guys like to take you to dinner and there's wine flowing and we're all there as a group. And and they use this like influence of, of liking, right? Or, oh man, I like this guy. This is going to be fun. Let's, let's do this. And then guys are high-fiving after and then it's like wait a minute what are the nuts and bolts of what the contract is going to look like what's my income scrape going to be what are your insurance reimbursement rates what's it look like at the what they call the second bite of the apple when this flips again in four five six years what's that going to look like are you guys still going to stick around as our mso how much money do you have invested your personal money in this are you invested in it what experience does your CFO have? Uh, and, and thousands of other questions so, that. So, David, it sounds like you really studied this, like almost like a science. And, and it sounds like you're starting to consult with folks. So, if people wanted to maybe reach out to you and get your advice or or help, if as they're navigating this complex process, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah. So I have. Um, they can reach out to me over. Uh, I have a Calendly link. Uh, Dr. Hergen is a good way. Okay. David Hergen. So the, the Calendly link will be in the show notes. And then do you have like a, uh, is there an email or a website or something else that we can yeah, uh, uh, reference as well? DavidHergenMD.com. All right, David. Wow. You've really um, dissected and analyzed uh, the process of finding, selecting, and securing a, a group, uh, an MSO, as well as a private equity group to for a, a practice to partner with. And you've even uh, shown us what it looks like to take the second bite of the apple where the private equity shop then sells everything uh, and, and the, the physician gets the exit at that time. So I, I think um, this is very powerful information. This is not shared commonly and not publicly as well. So thank you for doing this. And then um, I'm going to have to bring you back, uh, David, because now we have to uh, figure out this is only one of your expertise levels. I want to hear about how you've gone into real estate specifically developing medical office and even partnering with groups such as such as your own and you also are interested in regenerative medicine and you're showing a business model that may make sense for physicians to have ancillary income as well as uh increased referrals within their practice so that'll be part two guys of that episode so please uh be on the lookout for that 
Guys, until next time, be phenomenal. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Limitless MD. If you found value from this episode, I encourage you to share this episode with a friend and let me know by leaving a review. For more information, make sure you check out the links in the show notes below or simply visit VikramRaya.com. Until next time, be phenomenal. Be phenomenal.